Welcome to the Law360 Podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, along with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So today we've got a packed show. We're going to welcome guest Vin Guerreri to talk about a gender discrimination lawsuit lodged against a firm that just voted out the partner who brought the suit. Then we'll be joined by Stephen Trader, who's going to take us through the legal industry developments from the week. And at the end of the show, we'll share the tale of a would-be lawyer who dabbled in verdict slip forgery. But first, we have something that's perfect for tax week. Um, just in time for tax day, we have a really flashy case. Just Bill, we're all, what are we talking about? We're all scrambling to file our tax returns. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did have a late night like chat about some of our tax documents yeah, here Yeah, we at did. Work, we did. So. That's right. Um, I filed in February, guys, so I don't know what you're talking wow. about. I'm a very diligent citizen, wow. so I take my obligations pretty seriously. My husband filed our returns at like 10 p.m. on nice. the day they were due. Yeah, I had minutes to spare. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I don't know how closely you guys follow tax law, but this is by any definition arguably the sexiest tax law case you're going to get in a while. It involves Michael Jackson. It involves hundreds of millions of dollars. It involves perjury. And it involves, wait for it, Whitney Houston. It's got everything. This is great. So what happened here? So uh, if you haven't been following along, the IRS and the Michael Jackson estate are arguing over how much he, um, Michael Jackson died in 2009, how much he owes in estate taxes. The They are way apart on this. They, the IRS originally came in with like $1.3 It's been winnowed down. But billion. Wow. They are very far apart. Hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake. There was a trial held in February that was called the... Uh, tax trial of the century. Okay, so what makes it the tax trial of the century? Because well, it's got some legal, novel legal arguments in here, right? It does, yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that it's just Michael Jackson, uh, you know, sure. it's, a, it's a big thing. But the IRS, for the first time ever, has demanded from the Jackson estate, they have demanded uh, estate taxes for what are known as name and likeness rights. His image, the use of his face, the use of his name, they're known as publicity rights or name and likeness rights. Mm-hmm. That was a novel thing. They had never done that with the dead celebrity before. So hugely important. Uh, it came up when Prince died. It, it's th- this question of whether or not you owe the IRS theoretical money for what would happen if you had monetized your name and likeness. So the issue of even of, of whether you owe the money is up for debate. Exactly. In addition to how much. Exactly. Right? I mean, with Jackson, there's a lot of other stuff, but this Obviously, is a big, yeah. this is a hundred and... It's a big chunk of it. $120 million mm-hmm. of it is the name and likeness rights, that this novel sort of argument. And this would make a big change in the law because a lot of celebrities that pass away then have, um, their estates are very lucrative with the branding of and using their that's right and on things and and that sort of totally thing. and it's a huge issue now with Marilyn Monroe with all sorts of you see celebrity right fa- I mean faces it's, on there's thing. still Elvis stuff everywhere exactly you know, exactly it's basically anybody that's big enough but it's interesting how far apart they are on this thing because the estate argued that the um you know the IRS came in with again a higher number than what yeah. they're currently arguing but they said something like four hundred million dollars for these name and likeness rights. The estate argued back that Jackson's reputation was so destroyed by his child molestation scandal and all his other sort of problems that that came before his death that his name and likeness rights were almost valueless at the time of his death, which is what the question is here, not what they might be worth now as his, he's been rebuilt. That is a or, crazy argument for the actual estate to make. I mean, it makes sense legally while they, while why they're doing it, but to 
uh, sort of say, yeah, his, we're his estate, but it's yeah. not worth a lot. <laughs> One, guys. that's yeah, it seems counterintuitive on its face, right. but uh, it, I mean, and that seems it seems like the court there's no sort of case law or like test on the books to like tether. I don't know bad publicity to how it no one has like, any idea how any of this works because it's all theoretical <laughs> it's not like a, a right. copyright where you own a music catalog mm-hmm. and you can say they're selling this amount this is how much it's worth it's a theoretical idea of if you maximized your name and likeness rights the way that say other celebrities have done we believe it would be worth this much so it it adds all sorts of like you should have done this stuff elements to it that's yeah. very different than the way they've uh, my ears perked up uh, at your intro when you said perjury was involved. Yeah. So why don't you catch us up on what's going on uh, of late? Sounds like somebody did some bad stuff, maybe. Somebody, yes. Uh, so what happened was uh, the trial wrapped up um, in February, and the eventual ruling on this media issue that we've been talking about is going to come in a few months. Yeah. But this week, the estate filed a motion with the court accusing the IRS's key witness in the case, their only witness in the case, their only expert witness in the case, Mm -hmm. of committing perjury. Um, They say it tainted all of their testimony, which obviously would be enormous. They were, this is the only expert testifying to the valuation of Jackson's name and likeness rights. So if, if he is stricken from the case, it destroys the IRS case. Yes. Um, so what happened was the, and cause of course we have to get back to Whitney Houston. Yes. That was my other, uh, my other one in the intro. I didn't mean to get you off the track. No, it's yeah. fine. I mean, perjury. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the witness, uh, was asked on the stand whether or not he had ever worked with the IRS before. Mm-hmm. He said, no, it later came out that he had been retained on a very lucrative, uh, contract to do a similar valuation for the estate of Whitney. Um, for the tax burden of Whitney Houston. So um, that came out and that filing has been made. So it, it'll be and the it'll be a huge uh, uh, turn of events on on what happens on this distinct thing in the context of this bigger case. That's great. This one definitely had a lot of moving parts. Yeah. <laughs> and and we'll be watching because this could break some new law. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the next one we're going to turn to with you, Alex, you're going to tell us about uh, a high court case that has some broad implications for sanctions and litigation. So that's another really important one this week. The Supreme Court waded into the exciting territory of discovery fraud sanctions this week. Now, the good news is discovery fraud, still extremely illegal. You definitely can't do that. Uh, Lawyers but, will be pleased to know. Well, yeah. sanctions, sanctions like perjury are a thing that make a Law 360 reporter's ears perk up. I mean, definitely. Come on. So what the high court did uh, in, in a unanimous ruling earlier this week was that they made... Um, a subtle but still pretty significant change to the way that judges can sanction people for committing discovery fraud. They basically said, you are not allowed to just recoup legal expenses, for, like uh, to recoup all of the legal expenses from the moment that some discovery impropriety occurred. You have to draw a straight line between some piece of, of discovery fraud and your reward. It makes you basically show receipts. For, yeah. Uh, yeah. The court sort of reaffirmed a but-for test, which yeah. is to say you can only recoup legal fees that you would not have incurred but for this discovery. So what was what was the the 
you know, what happened in the case that, that the best way to set this up. The, the best way to talk about this is we don't have to construct a hypothetical. Is a really nice sort of underpinning here. There was a family driving through Arizona. This family is called the Hager family. Mm-hmm. They were driving their motor home, and they had a tire blowout, caused an accident, a lot of distress. They sued Goodyear because they said the tire was faulty and caused their motor home to crash. They, just before they went to trial, they settled for an undisclosed amount. But a year after that happened, the attorney for the Hager family discovered, by reading some news article about a separate piece of Goodyear litigation, Mm -hmm. that Goodyear had come forward with some tire testing results in that case, that they did not come forward with in this case. So they basically withheld very important information from the, yeah. They did. So they restarted the litigation. They said, hey, these guys did not fork over all the stuff that we asked. We need to be, we, we need to be made whole here on this. The judge agreed, awarded them $2.7 million in a, as a legal sanction and penalty for that. Uh, that was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. But it went up to the high court. But yeah, the, the logic was that they, they gave them sanctions from the moment it started, right? From the moment that that document was withheld. Correct. Right, yes, right, right. Sir, that's an important point. Right. They, they went sort of the, 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 all, the, the all or nothing route. Right. You know? Once that like, had been, once that had, that problem had been, you know, that mm-hmm. it, it, everything else was tainted from there on. And the Supreme Court, uh, again, a unanimous ruling was penned by Elena Kagan, said, actually, you have to sort of wind back the wheel a little bit here. And like I say, draw, like, take, only reward them for legal expenses that they made because of that for, uh, because of that dishonest activity during discovery. So now what's the posture of the case going back down to be recalculated? Did the high court give any indication of how they should sort this out? No, as they are wont to do, the high court sort of wanted to didn't want to meddle too much in the case and said, you know, you, the lower courts, still have authority to execute this standard in the way you see fit, but you have to try. And it creates this very interesting, this is all kind of like dry stuff, but it creates this interesting task for judges where it's like you have to be able to sort of identify some harm that happened from this one sort of granular thing, especially in these cases where there could be like lots of discovery filings and things. I, I thought about it in terms of like, you know, if you're playing a football game, and early in the game, mm-hmm. there's a penalty that uh, that's like sort of a sort of a blatant missed call or whatever, right? Or it's a it's a it's a, a dubious penalty, sure. and uh, as a result of it, your your opponent has to kick a field goal instead of punting. Now, if you go on to lose the game by two, you can go back and say, well, if not for that, like this whole thing is different. It's a whole cascading but series it, of, but it yeah. changes the if that penalty had not occurred, like it changes the decision tree of the game, right? It, right. Certain things may have gone differently, so we don't know quite how judges are going to do this. But uh, like I said, Justice Kagan gave them a wide berth to say your sanctions award should still be given a lot of deference and, you know, do your best and uh, cook up some sort of more appropriately tethered uh, sanctions but, there. But the takeaway is that, I mean, you, one has to imagine that it'll be harder to get these kind of things under this new under this new standard, right? Oh, well, I mean, it won't be hard. I don't know if it'll be harder to get them. I yeah. mean, it's just they may not be as high as they right, might have right, been right. Under, and, under and previous. And in yeah. theory, maybe they could ultimately be high numbers, but you're going to have to go through a lot more work to get the judges sure. there. Basically, sure. yeah. Okay, thanks for that, Alex. Thanks. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with Ben Guerrieri about the latest in a gender discrimination lawsuit filed against law firm Chadbourne and Park. But up first, we're going to take a look at the legal industry happenings. Abraham Masako, our regular reporter on this beat, is out for the week, so Stephen Trader is going to bring us the Legal Industry Minute. 
Thanks, Amber. Our first story is good news for big law firms who have bumped up their associates' salaries and given them more responsibility. According to industry experts, the change is likely boosting retention by keeping those lawyers from jumping ship for an in-house job. Attorneys have long weighed the value of a healthier work-life balance at an in-house position versus a big law firm paycheck. But Law360's Abra co-reported last week that sweeping pay hikes introduced last summer have tipped the scales toward young attorneys sticking around longer. Experts told our reporter the workload assumption that often comes with a pay increase hasn't been exhausting enough to push the fresh lawyers out the door either. However, the experts did express a concern that loftier salaries could make the path to partnership even more difficult than it already is. Our next story is an update on the death of Sheila Abdesalam, the first black woman to serve on New York's appellate bench, who was found dead in the Hudson River on April 12th. After initial reports the trailblazing judge may have committed suicide, the New York City Police Department now says it's viewing the death as suspicious. Abdesalam's body showed no apparent signs of trauma and was fully clothed when found. An early autopsy, however, turned up inconclusive, so the department said it will conduct a further investigation. Abdesalam's husband also issued a statement firmly pushing back against the speculation that her death was a suicide. On that note, we need to issue a correction regarding our initial report of this story last week, in which we referred to Abdesalam as Muslim, which was incorrect. We apologize for the mistake. This has been the Week in Legal News. This week, our main story is about gender discrimination in big law. New York-based law firm Chadbourne & Park was hit with a $100 million proposed gender discrimination class action that was filed by Carrie Campbell and other female partners in the firm. They say they were underpaid and excluded from positions of authority. Just today, we record on Thursdays, the firm partnership voted to expel Campbell. So we brought in Vin Guerreri, our senior employment reporter, to talk us through the case. Welcome, Vin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Vinay. Welcome to the booth, Vin. <laughs> so for listeners that haven't been following this one, Vin, can you just take us through um, the basics of the case? What was alleged? What did Campbell sue about? Of course. Um, Campbell sued last summer, and it's a very typical gender discrimination case in a lot of ways. So you have allegations of a boys club within Chad Bourne and Park. You have allegations that the firm's management committee, which when the suit was filed, was all men, had a, a completely outsized say in how much partners get paid and what their compensation structure looks like. So her argument, her claim here is essentially that the management committee favored the male partners over the female partners and gave them, they, they, they have kind of a point system that they work off of mm-hmm. and they gave the male partners more points, which is what their compensation is based off of than they would the female partners, even if the female partners were doing the same level of work or were even outproducing the men. So this wasn't a single instance. This was a firm-wide systemic throughout problem. She's challenging the policy directly. Right. And can you talk us through the most recent developments here? I know Amber mentioned there was this partner vote today, and uh, I know there was a little bit, there was some maneuvering ahead of that. Yeah, uh, yeah it's been in the headlines. Yeah, yeah. so what's yeah. going on? This is the part of the case that gets a little atypical. Mm-hmm. So a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was around April 4th, April 5th, the firm announced that to the press that they were going to vote Campbell out of the partnership. They are saying that they gave her a heads up last year that they wanted her to transition out of the firm. 
And they're saying they gave her that heads up before she ever filed the suit, right? About six months before, mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. So they, they're they saying that her practice doesn't fit in with the strategic direction of the firm. Campbell is saying that it is basically retaliation for her filing the suit. Of course, that's what she's saying. I mean, it seems like if you filed the suit and this is the next thing that happens, that's for, what you would from think. From a certain way of looking at it, you can. It, it's not a large leap to make that connection. The firm says that's not the case. The firm is just saying that it's individual to her. Her practice isn't fitting in with what they want to do and what they want to accomplish as a firm. And they kind of laid the blame at her feet quite a bit. They said that her choices since joining the firm are why they're voting her out and that she didn't quite keep up the promises that she made when she first joined the firm. Uh, three or four years ago, something along those lines. So Campbell took her retaliation argument to the court and tried to get this vote stopped. Is that right? Correct. And the court was actually pretty sympathetic towards her. But at the end of the day, the court found that there just wasn't enough evidence that this was retribution. So the vote went forward uh, today, I think, right? This morning. Yeah. And it was pretty unanimous. Um, I believe out of 80 or so partners at the firm, 70 voted to vote her out. The only vote in her favor was Campbell's own vote. Wow. So her own vote and then some people Several abstained. abstentions. There were several abstentions, yes. Um, and now that this vote is on the books, I know it doesn't have a direct bearing on the underlying class action, but as I understand we're pretty early in that process, right? I mean, what can we expect within the, within the course of the litigation here coming up in the next couple of weeks? Campbell asked for class certification. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just her now. Since she filed the suit, there are also two more female partners one is a partner one is a ex-partner she's now enough counsel do you have a ballpark of how big that would how big the class would be um give or take i mean it depends what class definition they're looking for yeah, yeah. right because it, it could would, be just partners or maybe expanded to I'm other sure attorneys at the sure. firm like yeah. associates i'm sure there's a statute of limitations here that comes sure. into play yeah. so probably it's a fair bet to say somewhere in the dozens okay so can you tell us a little bit about those women that joined Campbell's suit? Did they uh, did they say the exact same thing happened? And how long have they been at the firm? It seems like Campbell had only been there a few years. Yeah, largely they did. One of the partners that joined the firm had been there more than a few years. She had been there for more than three decades, I wow. think about 35 years. She was the product liability chair at the firm for a period of time. And she essentially corroborated everything that Campbell is alleging, saying that she's complained for years about the pay system. It's been the same pay system at the firm forever, for as far as anyone can remember. And she's saying she complained about it many times, but that basically it all fell on deaf ears, that the firm might occasionally pay her lip service, that they're trying to do something to fix it. But at the end of the day, there haven't really been any meaningful changes. So now that we know about what happened at Chadbourne, this isn't the only big law firm that's faced these kind of problems, right? No, there have been several, actually. Um, Greenberg Traurig, a few years ago, was a big one. Sedgwick Mm -hmm. is currently in the middle of a similar lawsuit of their own. They both either, actually, I shouldn't say they both settled. One of them settled. Sedgwick is still, uh, the indications recently are that they're close to settling, but they haven't quite gotten to that point yet. The interesting part of that is the same attorneys that are representing Campbell also represented the female plaintiffs in the Sedgwick and the Greenberg trial cases. So they're, they're 
getting to be experts in this type yeah. of litigation. So from it, from your reporting and from other reporting at Law360, it sounds like that the pay gap is as big a problem in the legal industry as it is in, in any any other field, that it's it's a it's a big problem. Um, could you sort of talk to to, you know, the, the extent of, of the issue in, in the legal industry? It's a big problem, maybe in different ways Mm -hmm. than you get in other industries, just because of the unique way that a lot of law firms are set up and structured. So there are little differences within that, but it's definitely a problem. And it's not a problem that you necessarily see clearly if you just look at lawsuits that have been filed. I would imagine women are very reluctant that are lawyers to file these suits. I mean, it it seems like in... We're seeing an example where you could make the argument, if you believe Campbell's side of the story, that she exercised her rights, filed the suit, and was punished in her career by getting voted out of her firm. Mm -hmm. A lot of law firm diversity experts who work on this would totally agree with you. Um, They would say the same thing, that there is definitely a fear among many women who work in law firms that even even if they know that they're being discriminated against or being underpaid, that there's a real concern about what bringing those allegations out publicly will do to their careers. So a lot of the time, they'll just either ride with it and hope it gets better, or they'll go and find another firm to work for and hope it goes away that way, as opposed to filing a lawsuit and going through that entire process that, that given the way that, given the small community that the legal field can be, something like that can follow a person around for many years. Well, and that seems like a unique problem, right? That, that that the legal industry control, it has a lot of power, but it's not in terms of manpower, in terms of the p- number of people involved. It's a fairly small world uh, mm-hmm. when, when you get into these, these really white shoe firms. Um, Especially if you're dealing just individual practices. Right. Um, you know, most law firms know exactly who's practicing at other law firms. Sure, they, right. they will know you by name. They might have worked in a case against you or with you even depending on the situation so there's it's definitely a small community yeah. so making the best possible assumption for law firms here that they don't want to be doing this intentionally that they're on the lookout against gender bias and and this pay gap what can they do other than just pay the women more i mean is there are there any best practices firms should be looking towards? well are there and are there any examples of of stuff that's you know that's already started like or that, worked, right, yeah. right right i mean you know step one you have to acknowledge that there's a problem <laughs> yeah. before you sure. can fix it yeah uh, i think that's the first step the first landmine do you think they're still lagging in that regard yeah, i a think lot of a lot law? of firms yeah. a, a lot of firms i think are um well, it sounds like from from you know this whole public <laughs> to do of the last two weeks it sounds like chad is just yeah. going ahead with i don't know it just, you yeah. know it seems like a pr it seems like an odd pr move yeah on their it part, also but. seems like a move that is just going to ensure that the suit continues because Carrie Campbell has to be really dug in with following through at this point now that she's been voted out of the firm. Right. She may not have a choice at this point. I don't know if the firm necessarily wants to settle the case. They might just be looking towards litigating it and hoping to vindicate themselves. But so if firms do make that decision that, you know, they they come to grips with the fact that there is a problem, what comes next? What are the, what what are we going to see? Well, that's, that's the hard part, right? (laughs) So you have to, you have to account for, female employees, women attorneys who take time off to raise a family. Mm -hmm. You have to account for female employees that have already been behind the eight ball for a long time and that their compensation structure from years and years of, we'll say, inadequate policies 
aren't they aren't at the level compensation wise that they should be at various points in their careers. So the question becomes kind of how do you undo the damage and make up for that lost time where the policies may not have been as progressive as law firms are at least attempting to move towards now. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation left me very depressed, guys. Yeah, <laughs> not a whole lot of uplifting stuff in yeah. this one. But it's it's the one uplifting thing is um, at least people like us and and the the media is talking about this issue in law firms, which we haven't seen a lot of before. Yeah. So I think law firms are talking about the issue internally quite a bit within themselves. Yeah, yeah and that's progress for sure. Yeah. Thanks for bringing this one to us, Ben. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. We're going to end today's show with something a little different. We've got a tale of a would-be lawyer who did some bad things. Can you tell us more about what he was up to, Alex? This is just really, when you get down to it, this is just a story of a guy who was just trying hard to get ahead. You know, you got to... You got to take risks sometimes in life. And Mm -hmm. when you do that, sometimes you get where you want to go. But sometimes what you get is a one-year prison sentence from the Suffolk County Superior Court. (laughs) Is this a Nick Hornby novel? Are we in Philip Roth territory? Like, tales of ambition? No, this this really happened, Amber. It happened to a man named David Schur. And David Schur is a former Suffolk University law student in Massachusetts. I, I see what you're doing over there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he's a former law student. Uh, he studied at Suffolk University. He never finished, but when he was in law school in 2014, he stole a laptop from a school building. He was brought up on larceny charges in municipal court, found guilty. He moved on. He tried to pursue other things. He got into the real estate game, was even sort of licensed, but he found that this conviction was holding him back in certain professional pursuits. So he decided to take matters into his own hand. And what he did was go down to the municipal courthouse, open his own docket, get his verdict form that read guilty, and basically forge it so that it said not guilty. <laughs> High-tech stuff. Yeah. I mean, if this is, if nothing else, putting his truncated legal studies to good use. He yeah. knew that you could uh, sort of open a docket and uh, you know get access to the court records. But, and so he was like just that. able to get his his verdict form? But, or just, just... As far as I know, I mean, it's... Uh, and also, none of this was electronic. Like, he... Yeah, he appears like, to have just, like, literally made some kind of, like, paper uh, forgery of it. And for a <laughs> while, and for a while, it worked. Uh, it was... Uh, it was... It, it Like, the actual fraudulent form sort of floated around it it, it it popped up in various other like databases and you know uh, filings and things like that but as i said this is pretty low-tech stuff right and the whole charade collapsed uh, after a while because even if you go in and change the actual form mm-hmm. it, i mean this stuff like there are other records of this stuff in right. terms of like like you do that one time it's not like you it's not like a fix and like oh can you imagine the anxiety of having this thing this thing out there being like uh one day somebody's gonna find out about I my, think if you're the my kind switcheroo of person, no i think if you're the kind of person that goes down to the court <laughs> gets your own docket yeah uses i don't know i'm imagining like white out <laughs> but yeah. whatever he did and changes the form you're probably not super worried yeah. about it catching up to you yeah anyway the the sort of real estate board got got wind of this mm-hmm. and uh, it, it came up in a, in, a, in a licensing renewal procedure for him. And they eventually put two and two together and brought him up on these fraud charges. Who, and it who was, brought him up? Just state 
it, it was yeah. yeah it well it was it was initiated by the real estate board and then he got dragged into the very same municipal court that this happened there gotcha. was a certain there was a certain circular nature to the thing yeah which i appreciate oh, david back again yeah Good to see you pal <laughs> so anyway he's going away for a year uh and the prosecutors said that he could get up to 20 years if he reoffends or something like this which actually struck i mean i'm not whatever this is not a good thing to do and i'm not saying that people should do it but uh i would i would think something like that would make him learn his lesson if you're like addicted to forgery it's a very obscure thing to be addicted to there are just really into shoplifting listen people have all kinds of forgeries and i won't and i won't judge them for like the the proclivities they have but anyway david sure but this is one time where we have a story where uh, the legal profession it was spared from this yeah. guy. He didn't finish his law degree, and we're all probably grateful that he didn't since he's mucking around in dockets. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't... I feel comfortable saying he probably wouldn't have made that great of a lawyer, and I think, uh, you know, he'll, like I said, he'll go away. I'm sure he'll think about some things, or maybe he won't. Sure, we'll sure, sure, sure. Sure. <laughs> David, sure. Great, thanks, guys. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Join us again next week for another roundup of the legal developments that have us talking. I want to thank my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Bye, guys. And Alex Lawson. It's been a real pleasure. Law360's podcast is a team effort. Our show is produced by Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, who also did double duty in the Legal Industry Minute this week. We'd also like to thank our guest, Vin Guerreri, for walking us through the law firm gender discrimination suit. Thanks.